This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, a big FBO chain joins the fight for fee transparency. And Casilla Audio Alert spots traffic. We talk about where pilots are getting their weather from these days. And we find out a little bit more about an e-gyro planned for a Brazilian helicopter market. Finally, David, we're going to look at the Boeing Pilot and Technician Outlook. Ian, are you ready to do some hangar talk today? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulitz. David, our guest this week, it's a guy that you met and uh, flew the airplane. It's Bearhawk's Mark Goldberg. This is a. Uh, Super duty, very cool experimental. It is. It's a four-person aircraft. The Bearhawk is a high wing. It's a good backcountry air- aircraft. But here's the difference between that and uh, other models. This airplane is actually a go-get-me-there model, too. It'll fly. It lands at around 40, Ian, and it's, the spread is pretty impressive. It, it can fly at around 130 to 150 miles an hour. So nice. you, you can take the family with you and maybe the dog and a cooler. You know, very cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. So we'll hear more about that a little later. But let's start out. So fee transparency. Now, this is something obviously we've been talking about for years at this point. And now, thankfully, one of the big FBO chains, we've got a holdout still, but one of them is coming on board and will be posting all their prices online. Yeah, and it's a pretty substantial chain. We're talking about Atlantic Aviation and Ian. They have about 69 locations nationwide, and I've landed at some of their locations. The personnel are very helpful, yeah. and they're going to have transparency. So this is a, a move in the right direction. Like you said, we've been looking for this for quite a while, and the smaller smaller ones are on board you know, a lot of the time, but we're looking at the big boys now, and Atlantic is one of them. Yeah. So, you know, we mentioned there's a big holdout, and that is Signature, the biggest. Now, they have said they were going to, you know, post some stuff online, and they have some, for some locations, done some piston fees. Of course, we're looking for turbine fees as well. This is, you know, we just think this is about fairness. It's like when you roll up to an FBO, you want to know what you're going to pay before you get there. You don't want to be surprised with outrageous fees. And I think getting people to post them online, it's like it's all just about 
transparency. Let's just be transparent about this. You know, you're going to charge me this. I'm going to pay this. We know before we go. That's right. When I uh, flew up to Ithaca, New York recently to cover a little NASCAR on my time off, I called the FBO directly and asked them if there were overnight fees or anything like that. And it would be very, uh, very easy and very simple to post that online. And there is a spot for that in the AOPA airport directory. Mm -hmm. So you have to tap dance around a little bit and find, you know, go right to the FBOs and click on the FBO. And then uh, generally at the bottom of that, there'll be contact information and some fuel pricing and then some services and fees. Yeah. So just to reiterate, Signature, you know, we're talking to you. Uh, let's get all those fees online. But in the meantime, soon you will be able to get them from Atlantic. And, and that's a good thing, moving in the right direction. Yeah. And speaking of moving in the right direction. So scene avoid, it's something, you know, that we learn from the get-go in flight training. You know, we divide the sky into little segments. We're looking for airplanes. But of course, our eyes are fallible. And now Casilla and Becker, Becker Avionics, they have joined forces to produce a technology that's it's really pretty cool. Hopefully, someday in the future, we'll be able to get this in the cockpit. And the idea is to get some audio warnings of traffic. It uses a computer that analyzes a video feed from one or more cameras, Ian. And this is interesting. You know, to sort of identify objects, triangulate, recognize them, and calculate the closing trajectories. And I think it's very cool. A quick sidebar, I had Becker Avionics in my air coupe. And oh, wow. they were excellent. They were very small and excellent. And it's a... People in the States might not know much about that company, but they've been around for a while because it was a while ago that I had that air coupe. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I've only used them a couple of times, maybe. I think, you know, CAP airplanes have them. They, a lot of them have them like the homing device for 121s, you know, that they yeah. would carry to be able to find people. I think those were Beckers in a lot of cases. So. Yeah, and they produce military stuff. But, you know, one thing that's, I think, interesting about this announcement and about this story is that it's something that, you know, I, I don't have a huge interest in drones personally. You know, I, I get it. I, I see the applications, but but personally not particularly interested. But this is a technology that is originating in the drone world. And so that's when I think I get interested is like when that drone technology starts to maybe come demand aircraft. Yeah, a good crossover is what you're talking about. And I think that that does say a lot about the, the way technology is moving and it's moving so quickly. An aural alert, you know, we already get an aural alert through ADSB, but it would be great to pinpoint that left, right, low, high, you know, anything that helps us identify that traffic quicker. I mean, gosh, you fly around now, even with ADSB, and there's so many potential traffic hits that you just with your eyes you just don't see them yeah yeah that's right and so by using cameras it's more real time and you don't have to rely on that person having a transponder or have an adsb and that sort of thing so yeah it's a very cool technology speaking of technology you know weather technology has has really expanded in the last couple of years and a big part of that is where pilots are getting their pre-flight weather information and so aopa does a an annual survey about that and what we're finding is that it continues to evolve towards big surprise apps. Yeah, you know, gone are the days, uh, for the most part, where you pick up the phone and call flight service or, <laughs> heaven forbid, walk into a facility. You can't yeah. really do that much anymore. <laughs> no. No. But, you know, that goes along with a whole generation of pilots that are younger pilots. You know, folks would much rather text than talk, I found, mm -hmm. with my daughter at least. And, and sometimes I'm that way, too. I think it gets us going a little bit quicker. And uh, I like, you know, the graphical depictions that we're able to get on our, on our EFBs and things like that as well. 
So um, the weather survey did point to the fact that you said that, you know, there's a, a reduction in the role of flight service specialists in providing that, you know, that audio alert. We we're just talking about audio alerts on the visual front, yeah. you know, but, but which w- would be good. But on the other hand, you know, it's, it's sort of backwards when you are listening and you can't really see what's coming on. That's you know, right. Weather-wise, yeah. It's interesting because the survey did find that people are calling flight service, and this just goes to show what an important function it is. They're calling flight service to get some expert advice, some detailed information about something that they're seeing on an app, which, you know, I've used it for that. I'm sure you have too. Another thing they're finding is that apps are changing a little bit, what people are using. Windy.com has moved up in the rankings. People are using that more often. And looking at uh, some of the FAA's, you know, weather forecasting options, we, we've seen the graphical forecast for aviation, especially folks in Alaska. They rely on a lot on that. And uh, the cloud vertical cross-section, those, those both show promise. You know, we have folks in our advocacy section that are moving ahead with things like that. You know, there's a lot of effort to beef some of these up and give us a little bit more weather, you know, weather penetration, if you will, you know, as far as knowing where weather's going and how to avoid it. Yeah. So uh, one thing that the survey found, and this is important, is PIREPs. Pilots still aren't producing PIREPs. They're not filing PIREPs. I think 47% of the respondents said that um, they sometimes will give a PIREP. I would say that's high. Many fewer than that actually do it. They say 53% really or never do. Unfortunately, I have to raise my hand. I am in that 53%. I do not do pie reps, but we were chatting. You you do file pie reps. I do, Ian. I think it's kind of cool to do. Now, here's the one thing that I think holds a lot of folks back. It might be the format might be intimidating to some people because there there are a few things to remember. You know, you want you obviously you want your altitude, the direction you're going, where you are, outside temperature, what kind of airplane you're in. Well, you're going to know that. So, but here's the thing that I've found, Ian, and you know whether your workload when your workload permits it. I think it's good to help other pilots. For instance, if it is clear and basically a CAVU day, it's still pretty helpful because you could have turbulence or not have turbulence. And I think it's still helpful. It's not that big a deal to click in on the radio if you have a second comm channel and go ahead and just file a pilot report. And I think it's okay if you don't know everything. Just, hey, what are the conditions? Well, they're clear, no turbulence. Or like the other day, I was flying with my buddy Eric Blenderman, and we um, flew around some clouds. You know, we'd use the old uh, Cessna 152 reminder, you know, to be away from the clouds and still in VFR conditions. But there were enough that were building up that I thought it would be helpful to let folks know that there were clouds. There were some scattered clouds and a little bit broken at points. And Eric's a relatively new pilot, and, and his instructors had not really hammered him on filing a, you know, a PIREP. So I think that intimidation factor is real, and folks who haven't done it very often, they should know it's no problem. People are not going to yell at you. They're just going to be glad to have that information, whatever you can provide. So walk me through it. I mean, it used to be it was like, well, you had to maybe call Flight Watch or Flight Service to do it, and so that was kind of a pain. So how, walk me through it. That's who'd, what I did. Okay, who'd you call? I'm flying. I'm flying along with uh, with my. I use Four Flight. A lot of people use Garmin Pilot, mm-hmm. and um, you you just write where you are, the nearest airport. Just click on it. Go to the information section about that airport. The frequency is going to be right there, and just use the second radio or standby channel. Call them up. Give them a quick report. It might take a couple of seconds for them to hear you or to respond. 
but I think it's worthwhile. And it really is kind of fun. I felt like I've helped other pilots. You know, it's sort of altruistic. That's what I feel. Yeah. Yeah, it's not hard. Not hard to do. Use your EFB. Find the clear, the closest channel frequency to, to get on and just give a call. But but don't leave. If you're getting flight following with ATC and you've got one radio, you know, you don't have two, you know, you want to let your ATC folks know you're temporarily leaving the channel. Yeah, know that you're going to click off for a minute. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Don't be afraid to do that, too. Usually ATC folks are, ha- are happy. And I think that they like that information as well. And really, I've actually relayed it to ATC before. Now, I hate to clog the channels up, but if it's serious and I think other people need to know, and I got bad information on my pre-flight or the information was incomplete, Interesting. I, think it, 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 I think it does augment for other people. Interesting. Okay. Very cool. Hey, moving on to a new aircraft. I'm not going to say airplane. New aircraft that you found. This this one's pretty neat. Skyworks Aeronautics just had an order for 50 of their e-gyros. It's a little bit confusing. It's ordered by a European company for use in Brazil, manufactured presumably in the U.S. So the interesting thing to me to begin with, Ian, is to find out that Brazil was the world's fourth largest market for civil helicopters to begin with. And the autogyro here that we're looking at, the e-gyro, is a real interesting design to me. You know, of course, you've got your your overhead blade. You've got you've got propulsion via jet, you know, but it looked like jet engines at this point, but they're going to be converted to eVTOL. And I just thought it was an interesting way to enter that that whole, you know, vertical takeoff and landing world. Um, and 50 Skyworks aircraft, I mean, that's a pretty big order. Now, Yeah. I'm skeptical, and I think you might be more skeptical, but, uh, <laughs> but this is yeah. an interesting turn of events. Yeah. Well, okay. So I, I hadn't heard of these guys. You know, the design, it actually reminds me of an Atom. I don't know if you remember the Atom A500 and a I do. That, well, because yeah. the way it looks, yeah, you're right. The E-Gyro looks like the same you know, same body style, yeah. if you will. Yeah. I don't, yeah. It almost took the fuselage and then just put a rotor on top. And yeah, it, it, you're right. It's funny because they call it uh, an electric aircraft, but it's it has nacelles that look like jet engines. Maybe it's, you know, they're thinking of transitioning. Yes. Anyway, this thing, I am going to go out on what I think is not a very big limb and say it will not work. <laughs> I, it looks cool. Their website has really neat graphics, very few actual aircraft. But I'm going to say that the the power required for a gyro is completely inefficient for the eVTOL world. It's just not a good idea, I think. Well, you are now uh, in the midst of... of- of trying to get your your gyro, you know, uh, certification. So, mm-hmm. so you know a lot more about this than I do. I think they're cool. I think the idea of a, of a gyro is cool. I was actually explaining that to my wife Lisa the other day. She had asked about it, but in the reality of the gyro world, Ian, don't you still need a little bit of runway? Like I couldn't take off and land yes. at a, in a park like in a parking lot next to my house, could I? Right. Yeah, that's right. Well, okay, so there are very f- there are some exceptions that very few exceptions. They are some gyros have well, one that I can think of have been developed such that they can actually do a vertical takeoff. I don't know about landing. And and what ha- what happens is you essentially over-rotate the rotor. It gets enough energy in it and it jumps off the ground like a bug. Levitate, uh, it levitates. Sort of, I got you. It's like, hey, yeah. it's going fast enough to that it pops you up. 
Okay. Yeah, it just whoop, you pop up and then you sort of go off. And actually, I was talking to an instructor the other day, and there is one an MTO that the new one the the engine will pre rotate the rotor fast enough that if you have enough wind, so you know you're sitting there in like a thirty knot wind ready to take off, it will you can actually take off vertically. But obviously, that's not a realistic scenario. So no, I think you know the the Gyron finds a hundred horsepower Rotax, and I would say that a one. 50 has better performance 100 horsepower 150 okay. i think okay i just think a wing is much more efficient in that area i mean it's true shorter takeoffs and landings but the drag on that rotor just so big that i just you know i think it's it's not an inherently efficient aerodynamic design so your takeoffs and or takeoffs are probably what 100 feet to 200 feet something like that yeah i mean i'm, I'm a big guy but a couple hundred feet, yeah. That, that's pretty short. I mean, really, when you're thinking about that, yes. that you know, we'll talk to Mark Goldberg about the Bearhawk in a little bit, but that's in Bearhawk backcountry aircraft territory, 200 feet. Oh, yeah. Or so. But an auto charger, I think, is kind of is kind of neat. We have a, a few that fly around here at Frederick Municipal Airport. Yeah, yeah. And they're pretty neat to see. They are fun. Yeah, and we're, we're you know, if you're trying to tour the countryside, uh, that's a great way to see what you're that's you know, true. Uh, yeah. flying over. Heck yeah. 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 I just think, you know, the Joby with like the multiple rotors, electric rotors, and it's that feels like it has a little more legs to me than this does. But it's cool. Cool to watch it nonetheless and, you know, see what happens. Well, speaking of seeing what happens, let's move ahead to some forecasting and, and see what's really going to happen in the aviation world. And I'm going to go ahead and take the lead on this and say that we are signif- looking at significantly less numbers predicted by Boeing in the highly anticipated, recently released pilot and technician outlook for 2021 to 2040. You know, Ian, the predicted pilot hiring numbers are down by about 20% since 2020. And that's significant. That that ends up being, you know, quite a few thousand positions per year. If you, if you work it out, the latest figures uh, mean there will be about 9,600 fewer pilot positions per year. And we're also looking at less maintenance technicians as well, about 15% less. Yeah. So this was surprising because, you know, they talked about sort of an uneven global recovery and, you know, obviously the airlines are not up to pre-pandemic levels. And so that I think factored into it. But still, you know, when you talk to people out there who run charter, you look at what's going on with the regional airline world, the hiring is back probably even stronger than it was pre-pandemic. It's very strong. Hiring is very strong, and we, we've written several stories about that. So I think what's happening is that they've revised the numbers down because there aren't many, aren't as many companies buying big jets, perhaps, and that's how part of this is forecast. Yeah. But the other thing is that I now we still didn't say the pilot shortage is over. It's still not over. That's right. It's just yeah. like there's there's less, uh, there'll be less of a shortage of pilots. Yeah. It is interesting. I, I would I was surprised that it was down this much. I wouldn't have been surprised with like a 5% reduction or something like that, but 20% is pretty significant. It, it is. It is. And I think a lot of that it has to do with um, the traveling numbers right now. Now, this could change in another year or so when we really finally climb out of the, the coronavirus pandemic, you know, trench here. But, uh, you know, 2019 forecast called for 804,000 flying jobs. And now that is 612,000 flying jobs. 
And that was 612 is down from 763,000 that were forecast Last in 2020. Year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you and I were talking about this back before Oshkosh because that's when they usually release it. And, you know, they're about a month late. So, well, what is that? Two months late. I wonder what that says about it, too, how much uncertainty are, you know, are inherent in the numbers. You know, I think that right when we were taught, when we were at AirVenture, I think that the coronavirus pandemic, you know, the COVID numbers were going back up again. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think a big company like Boeing really does have to take a wait and see look at it. But they're, they're a huge global supplier. So they're looking at the supply chain, yeah. you know, of all the parts and how to put these airplanes together and how many they're selling, then how many airlines are or are not in business. And I'll be honest with you, I recently read that Southwest Airlines was canceling more flights, you know, Hmm. And things like that. So we're not quite out of that yet. And I think the numbers might change by next year. You know, there's still a shortage. Yeah. But but there's not as huge of a crunch as as there has been. And you're right. The in, the flight training industry is going gangbusters right yeah, big now. Time. So that's a good thing. Yep. Very good. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, hey, want to hear from Mark? I think that, you know, this airplane is a very cool airplane. Excited you got to do it and excited that people get to hear more about it. Well, it's not very often we have an aircraft manufacturer on Hangar Talk, but let me welcome Mark Goldberg of Bearhawk Aircraft. Mark, tell me a little bit about Bearhawk Aircraft. Bearhawk Aircraft started as a kit manufacturing company for the designs of design engineer Bob Barrows. Originally, it was the four-place Bearhawk that we've been manufacturing since 2001. And uh, now we're making five different models, uh, all designed by Bob. The four place, there's been, I don't know, about 180, 190 kits sold, most of which are flying. And the subsequent design after that was our two-seat tandem patrol, which is kind of a great alternative to a Super Cub, which has been such a great airplane over the years. The next design was the Bearhawk LSA which uh, both Bob and I have really enjoyed flying. Surprised us how much we enjoy flying the little LSA. It's, it's a delightful flying little airplane. And more recently, there's two other models that we've developed. The first was a side-by-side uh, two-seater that we call the Companion, which was a derivative of the four-place Bearhawk fuselage with some modifications and using the patrol wings. And our most recent model is the Bearhawk 5 which this airplane was finished and flew about a year ago. And after a friend of mine in Missouri, uh, Colin, built the prototype of it. And so that's who Bearhawk Aircraft is. We make kits, just uh, designs by Bob Barrows. And tell me about the advantage of a Bearhawk Aircraft as compared to something else that's similar in that same league. Well, uh, I believe there's really a a big difference. And uh, apart from how good they fly, which is a widely recognized characteristic of all of Bob's designs. They really fly great. The other thing is how ruggedly they're designed and built. The 4130 steel tubing fuselages are quite stout. If you looked at one of those bare fuselages next to some of the other 
planes that people compare ours to, it'd be immediately noticeable that the tubing is much beefier. The wings are all aluminum, skinned wings, and not fabric. The uh, completely flush riveted, there's not a round head rivet in the breeze. They're also all 2024 T3, which is what is used in certified airplanes, Cessnas and Beechcrafts, they all use Piper's 2024 T3. They don't use the cheaper grade of aluminum, 6061 T6, which costs half as much, but is 40% less strong. So it means if you use a cheaper material, you can obviously sell your kits cheaper, but you also don't have the serious rugged structure like Bob Barrow's designs. And then you built one of the Bearhawks yourself. So how long did it take you to build it and which model was it? Well, the first Bearhawk was the four place. I built along with a friend of mine, we built it together, kit number one from the kit factory. It took us about 13, 14 months and about 1400 hours of work at that time. That was, it was finished in December of 2003 and it's uh, got close to 2000 hours in it now. Done a lot of flying here and there, Alaska and back, Oshkosh and back every year and uh, still rugged as can be. We do these really thorough annuals on it and find it's, uh, you know, Bob's designs take a lot. They, they are very rugged and we fixed almost nothing on this airplane in 2000 hours except starters and alternators and sub-assemblies, but Bob's designs are, are rock solid and stout as can be. So Mark, how hard was it to build an airplane? Well, uh, our earlier kits took a little bit more thinking and problem solving than current production kits, as you might expect. It wasn't impossible, but there were more decisions to be made and problems to be solved back in the beginning. Now it's much, much, much better. Uh, the kits are much more complete coming from the factory than they were back when we started. What's the satisfaction of a kit builder like yourself when you see that airplane take to the sky for the first time? Well, it's, uh, it's awfully fun. Uh, when you're in the plane yourself, it's even more thrilling. It's a satisfaction that you don't really understand until you've done it. But uh, building your own airplane, brand new airplane that you know inside and out because you built it, and then taking it off and having it fly and being such a great flying airplane, that's a tremendous sense of satisfaction. Now, one of the things that's hard for a lot of aviators to get past is the cost of aviation. There's a distinct advantage in being a home builder, building your own airplane. How much is the cost, Mark? Well, it depends on the model. Our mo different models that we make, the least expensive to put together is the LSA. And from our, I'm talking about from our quick build kit, you would spend somewhere between about $60,000, $70,000 and you've got a great airplane that's compared to the old Arancas and Taylor Crafts and those kind of planes, uh, even the, the, the Cubs with less horsepower, you've got a, just a tremendous alternative. The other models, the Companion and the Patrol, you would spend somewhere between about 75 and 95, and the variation of low to high end is you know used engine, fixed pitch prop versus brand new engine, top-of-the-line constant speed prop. So on the four place, you'd spend somewhere between about 80, 85 to about 110 or 15. And uh, the new one, the Model 5 here, that one is a little bit more expensive. The kit's a little bit more expensive and the engines for it that most guys are going for are a little bit more expensive. So you're from, from around 110 to about $150,000. But now the Model 5 is really a six-place airplane. 
it is a six place airplane. It's, so it's delivered with all the seats, the, the two front seats, a middle seat and a rear bench seat. It is a six seat airplane. How does that compare to a new certified aircraft? They basically don't exist. Uh, the, there is one or two, one other home built that is considered a six seat airplane, but it doesn't really compare with this, both in terms of how it's designed and built and how it flies. This is a, just like all of Bob's planes, a great, great flying airplane. And what about a production model? What would you compare the Bearhawk to? Can you compare it to a Part 23 airplane? If so, what would be the closest one? I believe the closest would be a Cessna 185. And what you'd find is this will basically do everything better than a Cessna 185. 185 might have slightly higher cruise number with, you know, three to five mile an hour higher, might, depending on, you know, how it's set up and how the Bearhawk 5 was set up. But as far as takeoff, climb, load carrying ability, handling, uh, the Bearhawk's got it beat. The interior space of the Bearhawk Model 5 in every dimension you can measure is about 10% bigger than a Cessna 185. I flew in the Bearhawk 5 yesterday, and indeed, it is quite roomy in the front seat. It's a very comfortable airplane and a very capable airplane. And all of your models seem to excel in backcountry flying. Tell me a little bit more about that, Mark. Well, it's how Bob uh, Barrows designs them. That's what, you know, every airplane is a compromise. There's the go-fast airplanes and that you'd never want to land on any kind of rough strip or anything. And then there's the airplanes like these that excel at getting in and out of short strips. What makes Bob's designs unusual and especially useful is the fact that they get on and off quite short, but also have surprisingly high cruise speeds. Down the whole line, like the LSA is a 120 mile an hour cruise airplane on 100 horsepower. The uh, patrol that'll land anywhere that a Super Cub will land is a 150 plus mile an hour airplane. So you're 40 or 50 miles an hour faster than a Cub. Both ends, you've got a very wide range from what they touch down at and the top end cruise speed. What is the typical engine that a builder would put in one of these models? Well, there you've got a range of engines that are available. The low end is a 0360, 180 horsepower, up to a 260 horsepower Lycoming 540 parallel valve cylinder engine. And the big engine is uh, quite impressive performance. Uh, most of the people, the builders who build our four plays, go with the 540. And I attribute that mostly because a lot of them have gotten demo rides in my four place, which the original kit number one. And if you have never flown in a 540 powered Bearhawk and only flown a four cylinder powered Bearhawk, you'd be real happy with the performance of the four cylinder model. But you get a taste of that power and getting pushed back in your seat when you take off. It's very impressive and very exhilarating. About 70, 75% of the builders go with the six cylinder 540. And that big engine, that six cylinder, is similar to what we find in some of the earlier Cherokee sixes, the 260 horsepower Lycoming, which also powers some of the Cessna 182s and other models. Sure, it's in a bunch of airplanes. Uh -huh. And then that Model 5 aircraft that we're sitting right next to, what's the engine in that bad boy? Well, uh, this particular one has a Lycoming IO580 making 315 horsepower. I personally had never heard of a 580 before, and I heard about it, and I contacted our rep at Lycoming and uh, told him that I'd love to stick one in our new prototype of this Model 5, and I'd uh, do my best to promote the engine and 
if they would give me a good deal on one and I'd surprise the heck out of me, but they did. So that's why there's a uh, IO580 in this one. This Model 5 can take down to a parallel valve cylinder 540, 260 horsepower. The next step up is the IO540 with angle valve cylinders that makes 300 horsepower, which me guessing to the future, I think that'll be the most popular engine for the airplane, but, but I don't know. And this IO580 is the top of the line engine for, uh, for it. Now, one thing about Bearhawk aircraft that you and I discussed a little bit earlier is that because they're so powerful, you really need additional training to be able to be comfortable in that aircraft. Well, it, it depends on who you are and how cautious you are, but that's obviously a good idea, no matter who you are. There's some guys that, you know, flown everything, hundreds of different kinds of airplanes, and they can jump in and fly most anything, but most of us aren't like that, and most of us can use some transition training. So uh, especially with the high horsepower Bearhawk is a really good idea. And who is handling a lot of that transition training? Well, there's only one fellow, Jared Yates. He's in North Carolina and he's authorized by the FAA to give transition training. He's got 180 horsepower Bearhawk, but he kind of orients guys that are getting ready to fly their airplane after building it, what to expect. And some of the big news that we had recently was that one of the Bearhawk owners in Alaska attached skis, floats, and big Tundra tires to that airplane all in one calendar year. Uh, in one year, in one calendar year. He's a friend of mine up in Kenai, Alaska, where they do all kinds of wild flying. And he's not a real giant tires off airport guy, but he, during the course of a year, flew on skis, floats, and tires. So that shows the versatility of the aircraft. The Bearhawk excelled each configuration, according to him. And that is a beautiful part of the world to use an airplane in that has those three different capabilities. Absolutely. So now closer to home, here we are in Austin, Texas. Tell me where the kits come from and how you get Bearhawk kits to their owners. Well, we manufacture the kits at a factory that we set up, own, and trained all the workers in a small town outside of, uh, it's called Atlisco Puebla, just right outside of the big city of Puebla, which is the fourth largest city in Mexico. It's about a three hour drive from Mexico City. I have a lot of ties to that area from being a student down there uh, back when I was a kid. And so that's why we're there. We send the kits up, we load them into a 53 foot tractor trailer, bring them to a warehouse, unload them here in central Texas, and we distribute them to our customers uh, out of here whether they're customers in the United States or we also load up the containers here to ship to New Zealand, Australia, South Africa. Recently, I shipped a kit to Austria, a patrol kit to Austria. It's always fun sending kits to, to new places where we've never sold anything before. And it seems like you're pretty accessible to these owners too. Well, our company is a little unusual in that the people who buy our kits can call me up anytime and they can also call the design engineer anytime if they have a question they'd like to ask Bob. So they can, they can talk to the primary people involved in the business, not just salespeople or whatever. They have a good access. We try and take care of our customers. So I've been with you out in the fields here on the ranch in Texas where you've gotten some cucumbers and tomatoes growing, and you've been answering that phone to Bearhawk home builders left and right, trying to set them up in the right direction. Well, uh, when I built the first airplane that I ever built back in the mid-90s, I finished it in 95, I didn't really uh, know anything. Uh, I was totally in the dark and I got a lot of help from a, one friend of mine who had built one and a, a, a famous fellow named Tony Bingalis who wrote 
a how-to-do article for EAA Sport Aviation magazine for 20 years. And Tony was my technical counselor from the local EAA chapter. And he came out and helped me with my fly baby and the RV-8 I built. Tony was invaluable because I didn't really know anything at all. And I'm not really mechanically inclined. So, it, But once I see something and see how it's done, I can usually, I can usually do it. And my uh, effort is to do half as good as Tony did as helping people because he, and, and be as patient because Tony, I asked the stupidest questions in the world, but Tony was, couldn't have been more patient and, and helping me get oriented how to do these things. So if someone was to ask you how much experience they would need mechanically or engineering wise to tackle a project like this, what would you tell them, Mark? I'd tell them it's more attitude than past experience. If you're willing to ask questions, and not just drill holes before you know what you're doing. If you're willing to ask questions and ask for help, if, you, if you're not sure, uh, you'll be fine. If you think you know it all, even though you've never done it before, well then perhaps you shouldn't build an airplane. But it's, uh, none of it's hard. Most of the builders that we sell kits to have never built an airplane before. Granted, some find it easier than others. That's human nature. But uh, most anyone can do it if you're willing to Go slow, learn what you're doing, ask questions if you have doubts. Uh, it's not that hard. Give us your website. www.bearhawkaircraft.com. And what are your travel plans for this summer as we go into something like EAA AirVenture? We'll be there. We've, uh, we've been there every year since 2002. It's the one air show that we always go work. I'm, I'm a little bit lazy about working all these smaller air shows, but Oshkosh, we have to be there. And we'll have a really nice booth space this year. We're going to put the Model 5 here on big bush wheels and stick it out in front of the booth. I should have a really lovely four place that uh, hopefully will have its time flown off before the show. And either a patrol or maybe a companion. We should have three nice examples of what we do. Finished airplanes in the booth for people to see. Okay, so we'll look for you at AirVenture. All right, let's look at our crystal ball for a minute, Mark. What's in the future of Bearhawk Aircraft? We have the electric world revolving all around us. Surely there's some plans for that. Well, I, uh, I, I don't really have much to, you know, that this is new for us. We've just started, we've delivered seven of these now, and it's a brand new model. The Companion's a relatively new model. I'm not in a hurry to bite off a bunch more to chew. We got our plate pretty full as far as new models. The design engineer, Bob Barrows, is finishing up an electric motor ultralight. And it's in the realm of possibility that we might sell those once Bob makes them. But until it flies and Bob's happy with it, which is how it works, he designs these airplanes, he flies them, he's happy with them, he you know, changes whatever he needs to change until it flies like how he likes it to. And then it's uh, something that's revealed and, you know, to the public and sold to the public. So there's a ways to go before this electric ultralight becomes a reality, but he's getting close to flying it. One thing I didn't ask you about earlier, but I want to follow up with it real quick. There's a lot of interest in short takeoff and landing aircraft, and especially the Bearhawk line, which is not just a great short field airplane, but it's also a going places aircraft, as you mentioned. I mean, it cruises at around 130 to 150 miles an hour. So you told me earlier when we were chatting that you had a little bit of a backlog now. What's that all about? Most of the kit companies now, especially the backcountry airplane kit companies, have backlogs for someone that wants to buy their kits. And it's a speculation why that is, but certainly backcountry flying has become more popular. Uh, I had a 
conversation with somebody that kind of, I thought, made some good points that back in the early 2000s, the go-fast airplanes were the, the thing of the day, the fiberglass, the composite airplanes, the 200-plus mile-an-hour airplanes. That was really the, the, the focus of, of home building. And I believe that sort of shifted to backcountry utility-type airplanes. And I think that's worked in our favor. And very much uh, I used to try and keep kits of all of our different models on hand and have inventory so that people could call, say, well, I want a kit, when can I get one, as soon as the you know, delivery schedule permitted and my delivery driver. But now we've got about a year backlog for kits, just from the last year when during the pandemic it really took off. And we're hopeful that with some changes we're making at the factory, hired a few new people and doing a few things differently, we're hoping to speed up our production down there while still keeping our quality what we expect. Okay, well, I'm hoping I can get my hands on a Bearhawk soon. So one more time, Mark, tell folks how they can get in touch with you. Bearhawkaircraft.com. We've got a toll-free number. It's on the website. You're welcome to call. I can answer your questions about the kits uh, and what we do. Thanks very much, Mark. Hope to see you down the road. My pleasure. All right, so David, for a pilot who's used to, you know, 182 sort of performance, you know, that kind of stuff, what, what the Bearhawk, I mean, it must have been quite the ride. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the heck out of it. Uh, kudos to Mark and uh, the folks at Bearhawk Aircraft. Listen, I was impressed. I got to fly the Bearhawk 5, which is a six-place airplane, and the Bearhawk 4-place, which is a four-place airplane. And, you know, we got off the ground out of this Texas muck. It had been raining for two weeks, solid. And raining enough that they canceled, or basically shortened the uh, uh, NASCAR race nearby, uh, Circuit of the Americas. And we still got off the ground, uh, you know, in, a, in less than 10 seconds. The tail raised almost immediately. And the handling of that those two airplanes, the four-place and the Bearhawk 5, were very good. I am no Dave Hirschman by any stretch of the imagination, but but I can tell you that it was much lighter weight, much lighter on the flight controls than a Cessna 182, especially in the landing configuration. Yeah, you know, in a 182, you've got to pull back, you know, pretty significantly. There's push forward, pull back, depending on how much flaps you've got. There was very little aircraft pitch change when you added flaps, and the, and the control stick was very light. The stall characteristics were very good. And I think that's an interesting airplane. And here's the other thing. The four-place, if you're a builder and you're not intimidated by building, you can have a go-in-place airplane for about 100000 bucks, brand new with all the cool stuff. Very cool. All right. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.com org slash hangar talk and wherever you get your podcasts on apple or google all right we'll see you next time see you next time hangar talk from aopa your freedom to fly <laughs>